Hello everyone, my name is Haley Elizabeth and if you don't know who I am, I post videos pertaining to a little bit of whatever I want and that includes this podcast called Behind You. If you're unfamiliar with my podcast, this is a true crime podcast where I discuss all things true crime such as murder, disappearances, cults, and even all the way to the biggest drug bust in history, the biggest bank heist in history, all things true crime. And if you're interested in any of that, you can go to my YouTube channel, Haley Elizabeth every Wednesday to watch the visual version or go to Spotify, Apple, or wherever you can find podcasts every Tuesday to listen to the audio version. But if not, totally fine. Like no pressure. You don't have to, you know, you don't, you don't got to commit if you don't want to. We're just here to discuss some true crime essentially. And the case that we are going to be discussing today is the case of Christopher Wilder. This is is a very long case, probably one of the longest cases I've ever researched. So since there is a lot to get through, we're just going to hop right into it. So Christopher Wilder was born on March 13th of 1945 in Sydney, Australia. He grew up with his mother, June, his father, Coley, and his three little brothers. His mom is Australian and his father is from the U.S., so because of this, they had dual citizenship. Now, since this family was a military family, they were constantly having to move all around. They actually moved a lot around in the U.S. and then to the Philippines in 1950. But after a while that is when his father decided to retire and he retired in Sydney, Australia and that is where the family remained. So as a child, Chris was described to be a very odd child. Um, he, as a child, got into a pretty bad accident, but was able to recover from it. And as a kid, he was caught multiple times peeping through neighbors' windows. Now, when he was a kid and he was peeping through neighbors' windows, people just kind of assumed, you know, he's a kid, he doesn't know what he's doing. And also as a child, he was very spoiled as well. His parents never really disciplined him. They never really gave him any, you know, they didn't take any of his stuff away. They didn't ground him. They just didn't really punish him. They sort of just babied him, spoiled him, got him whatever he wanted. And so even though Chris would do bad things all the time and would never get consequenced for it, this kind of became a cycle of Chris having the mentality that his actions had no consequences. As a teenager, Chris went into a boarding school, but at 15, he was dropped out. After 15, he decided not to go back to school and get a full-time job as a carpenter, and it was at this job where he saved up to buy his very first car. On January 4th of 1963, at 18 years old, uh, Chris went to the beach one day and he met a group of 17-year-old boys and they were all hanging out and there was this group of girls at the beach that they were kind of play flirting with and so Chris and two boys walked over to one of the girls and they decided to play this prank on one of the girls where they took one of the girls, picked her up, and put her in the back seat of Chris's car and drove off and it was was supposed to be a fun game sort of thing until Chris, he was the one that was driving, he drove the three of them, he drove all four of them into a wooded secluded area and so he got out of the car and he told the two boys to walk away and go somewhere in the woods and when the boys did, they came back a little while later and they saw that 
Chris was buckling up his pants and the girl was in the back seat crying and it was made known afterwards that whilst the two boys were gone Chris had actually raped this 15 year old girl. The two boys didn't really know what to do because this, you know, was just supposed to be a prank until Chris just took it way too far. So all of them get back in the car and they drive back to the beach and the girl, she ended up telling her father that same exact night. So immediately they went to the police and they filed a police report. And while this girl was explaining the story to the police, she said that it was Chris that was doing all of it. It was not the two boys the two boys weren't even there at the time of the crime but for some reason they still charged all three of them the police arrested the two boys and chris and all three of them got charged with sex with a minor under 16 years old now chris's father he had a lot of money and so with a lot of money comes a lot of power unfortunately so chris's father argued to the court that this was just a huge mistake it was a misunderstanding and chris would never do anything like this and chris has definitely learned his lesson and so the court believed chris's father for some reason so chris was let go on a year suspension and did not face any prison time whatsoever for this crime. Chris also during this time said that whilst he was, you know, awaiting trial, he was given psych evaluations, but undergoing the psych evaluations, he had to go through electroshock therapy. Now, this was never confirmed, but this is just something that Chris said to make the court believe that he was innocent and that he was you know being harmed behind closed doors by the court and so then after all of that the two boys were not given jail time either they were also given nine month suspensions and so those two boys are about 50 years old now and one of the boys came out in an interview a couple years back and he said that even to this day he lives with the guilt and regret of that day he he wishes that he could have turned back and did something. He wishes that he would have intervened. He wish he would have drove. He just lives with all of this guilt that he should have done something in that moment. So then on January 11th of 1965, Marianne Schmidt and Christine Sherrock, both 15 years old, went missing at Wanda Beach. Now these two girls uh, actually are called the Wanda Beach murders and it is speculated that Chris Wilder was behind these murders. So one day on January 11th, the two girls took Marianne's young siblings to the beach, but that day the beach water was a little too choppy, so they kind of just stayed and played on the sand, and the two girls were just, you know, having a fun day at the beach, and that is when a man approaches them and just, you know, charms them up, talks them up, and from testimonies of the young boys, this description matched perfectly with Chris Wilder. So this guy and these two girls, they're talking, and eventually the boy learns them out into a shallow part of the beach and after that the girls were never seen for hours and hours the young boys ranging from ages 12 to 6 were just sitting on the beach until 5 p.m and one of the young brothers actually recalls that same exact boy walking past them a while later and when the young boy asked 
asked the kid where his sisters were, the guy just ignored him. Again, this is speculated to be Chris Wilder. So after all of that, the boys are sitting there until about 5 p.m. Hours and hours have went by and they had not seen their sisters. And that is when the 10-year-old boy named Peter decides to take all of his siblings and get on a two-hour train ride all by himself. They make it home safely and that is when they tell their parents that the two girls are missing and they just never came back. They went with a boy and they never came back. And then the next day on January 12th of 1965, a man is walking along the beach with his nephew and that is when he discovers two bodies lying in the sand. The police came out to this scene and they confirmed that these were the bodies of Marianne and Christine. Marianne had her throat slit so badly that she was nearly decapitated as well as stabbed six times with semen on her body. Christine had a fractured skull and stabbed 16 times along with semen. The police speculate that the weapon used was a half inch long blade with a sharp end, but the thing with this is that the police had very, very little evidence. This was also in the 60s where DNA testing was not as advanced as it is now, so now if this were to happen, they could just test the semen and figure out who the person was, but during this time in the 60s they didn't have that technology so all they could really go off of was witness statements and this wasn't you know as helpful as they thought it was going to be so with this they really had no clue who this person was and this case just eventually went cold but they did interview other people on that beach that day and said that that man of that description had approached a bunch of girls that day showing young girls porn, talking vulgar, and the description matched exactly to Chris. They interviewed all of the sex offenders in the area, but again, nothing ever came of this. Chris was also made a suspect in 1969, but was never questioned about these murders. And then in 1967, when Chris was 22 years old, he started up a relationship with a 15-year-old girl, which the father greatly disapproved of, and so with this disapproval, Chris broke up with the 15-year-old and started dating her sister, who was 20 years old. Now, this girl, she actually remains anonymous, so for this time being, I'm just gonna call her his girlfriend. So, Chris and his girlfriend dated for a couple of months until one day, Chris had taken his girlfriend to a secluded area and in the secluded area he forced her to take off her clothes in the middle of the woods while he took pictures of her and after this they broke it off for a couple of months but she eventually went back to him um it was also said that chris attempted at having sex with her mother but this was never pursued because the mother just cut it off before it even started and then on february 17th of 1968 despite all of these red flags, the couple eventually got married. His girlfriend, now wife, uh, said that for the first couple of weeks, everything was fine and nothing was really, you know, alarming until Chris started to soon come very aggressive and demanding during sex, which she, you know, did not like at all. She also later found nude pictures of all of these random women taken on the beach as well as these women wearing her 
her clothes that she lost a while back. And so after she found all of these nude photos, she started to become very weary of Chris. She started to speculate that maybe he was doing things behind her back. She didn't really believe any of his excuses anymore. And because of this, Chris felt very overwhelmed. He felt like he was being caught. So mid-1968, when his wife was driving to work, her brakes randomly gave out when she was driving on the highway and thank goodness she was not harmed but then a week later she was driving on the highway and her steering wheel went out and when it did go out she veered off of the road but again she was completely safe and she thought that this was very very odd because Chris was actually the one that handled all of her car issues and he was said to be a very good mechanic so at this point she kind of felt that Chris was doing this on purpose. Months later, another really odd incident happened where his wife was one day walking around the house and she smelled this really weird smell and when she goes into the kitchen, she finds that all four of the gas stoves are on as well as all of the windows shut in the kitchen. And this was very, very odd because it was in the spring summertime and usually in the spring summertime, you have all of the windows open and typically during this time, she always had her kitchen windows open. So this was another really big red flag to her. And within their first year of marriage, the woman actually left twice, but unfortunately went back each time. Until November of 1968, Chris went out on the beach and convinced this one girl that he was a photographer and he needed some pictures for his portfolio and if this girl would come with him to take some test shots. So she agreed and the two of them went to a secluded area and that is when Chris forced the girl to take off her clothes while he filmed her. Chris later let the girl go but called her later that night and threatened to her and said that if she told anyone what happened that day, he would release all of the pictures and videos that he took of her. So then later on that night, Chris calls the girl and tells her that if she does not show up at his house tomorrow, he will release all of the pictures and videos that he took to her. So this girl being extremely frightened she goes over to his house and that is when she was raped by Chris and then after this incident she ended up going to the police anyways but when she did go to the police she did not want to testify because she was in fear of if she did testify then possibly the pictures and videos were going to be released or possibly she would be blamed for not going to the police sooner so since she just felt like she was going to be blamed or that her pictures were going to be shown. She did not want to testify and so then Chris was arrested and charged but since the woman never testified, Chris was never officially charged and he was just let go. So then after this, Chris went home from the police station and he went home to an empty house and found that his wife had left him for the third and final time. And then in February of 1969, the woman divorced Chris and after the divorce, the woman and her mother went to the police to file a police report against Chris for the Wanda Beach murders and this was during the year as I said earlier 1969 where he was made suspect but once he was made suspect he was never once questioned about these murders he was never taken seriously as a suspect which is very heartbreaking because you never know what could have happened if he was questioned and if he was found guilty you never know if this would have stopped anything that, you know, 
is further to come. So then on May 4th of 1969, Chris decided to leave Australia after his divorce and all of his charges and he just needed a new slate. So he decided to pack up all of his things in Australia and move over to Florida. He lived in Southern Florida with his dual citizenship and that is where he picked up a job in construction. Although he had a clean record in the US, he did return to his old habits. Chris Wilder's approach and most popular approach when trying to kidnap these women, he would approach them and say that they are very attractive and that he's actually a photographer and they were and he was wondering if this girl wanted to model for him. He would tell them just all of these stories that he is this very well-known photographer and he just thought this woman was very very stunning and if she would be willing to take some test shots for him it'll only take a couple of minutes you know we could go to a really nice location and I'm just going to take a few pictures of you and he would mostly take younger women because they are most vulnerable to these situations they felt very flattered that this guy saw them as very attractive and that they could possibly be a model you know being a model is sort of a dream job for a lot of young girls so with this approach he was unfortunately able to get a lot of victims he not only went to the beach with a photographer approach but he would also go to malls as well in 1971 he convinced a teen girl at a mall to model for him and he also proposed the idea of nude photos to the girl but this girl saw that as a really really big red flag and she said no i don't want to you know pose nude for you and immediately afterwards she went to the police and reported chris about this situation now the police in the u.s unknowing of his history in australia chris was only given a 15 dollar fine plus 10 dollars court costs and then was later released after all of this his construction job wasn't really making him as much money as he thought he was going to get so instead he decided to make his own business his own construction business so he was able to get surprisingly a lot of money from this business and he was even able to get his own beach house in Boynton Beach. He bought himself a Porsche, a speedboat, and a motorcycle, and he even met a girl while he was in Florida who he then lived with and dated for a whole seven years, and this woman was later interviewed, and she said that during those seven years that they were dating, nothing ever went on between the two. Chris was never violent. He was never aggressive during sex. He was never, you know, um, he was was a very loving and caring guy to her. He never hurt her. She never felt threatened as if she was going to be hurt by him. But the reason why Chris wasn't aggressive towards his girlfriend wasn't because he was starting to get better. It was actually because he was getting his outlet through other places. Whenever he would tell his girlfriends that he was going out to work, especially on Saturdays, he would be at the office all day. In reality, he was on the beaches and malls trying to pick up vulnerable young women. He actually took this time to stalk and assault so, so many young women. And then one day his girlfriend had found nude photos of all of these different girls on the beach. And through this, she also found out that she, she also found out that he was sleeping with his bookkeeper as well. So after she found these pictures of so many young women and also found out that 
that he was cheating on her with his bookkeeper, she decided to leave him after being together for eight years. And then in 1974, three years later, Chris picked up a young woman from a mall and told her that he was a famous photographer and that he could give her the opportunity of a lifetime to be a famous model. And when she agreed to take test shots of him, he instead drugged her and raped her. Now, afterwards, the girl ended up going to the police about this incident. But when she did, Chris said that he did do those things, but was only given probation. So again, Chris is just doing all of these crimes, all of these horrific crimes with absolutely no consequences. And then in 1977, he continues to stalk women. One day, he was working on a house. As I said, he had a carpenter construction company. So one day, he was working on a house, and that is where he met this 16-year-old girl. So with his fixation on this 16-year-old girl, he decided to end up stalking this young girl. He stalked her as he watched her go into a convenience store. And so when she was in this convenience store, that's when he parked right out front and popped his front hood and so when the girl came out he was like hey you remember me I worked on your house I'm actually having some car issues like do you think you can help me and the girl is like I don't think I can help you I don't know too much about cars but my dad knows a lot about cars so then that's when Chris says okay well how about I drive you and me to your house to hopefully get this fixed by your dad and so the girl not really you know having any bad feelings towards Chris she was he was simply just a random guy that worked on her house so she was like yeah like we can both drive over there together and get your car fixed but instead of Chris driving her back to her house, he actually drove her to a remote location where he demanded sex and actually attempted to force it upon her. But whilst he was forcing it upon her, she had told him that she was pregnant. And when she had told him that she was pregnant, he immediately stopped. He went back to driving, but he did force the girl to give him oral while they were driving. So later on that night, the girl went to her father about the incident and her and her father went to the police and this this is the most wild part and this this genuinely is so so great now like throughout this story there are a lot of parts that are very terrible and disgusting as Um, As I was talking about earlier, he raped a young girl and only got probation. But this instance, this is just one of the many instances where you just got to be like, what? Like, what were the police thinking? Especially that situation I was talking about earlier where he raped a young girl and was only put on probation for it. And so in this situation, the girl goes to the police and she told the police that Chris had attempted to rape her, but she had told him that she was pregnant, but he did force her to give him oral the whole ride home. And this was a very traumatic, you know, experience for her and she's opening up to the police about all of this and so for a crime like this this is assault this is a hundred percent assault you have to you know there has to be some consequence for this but instead Chris he confesses to the crimes he says yes I did attempt to rape her and I did force her to give me oral but 
I was just down in the dumps. And he says that. He says, I was down in the dumps and I'm sorry. And you know what the court says? The court's like, okay, yeah. And the court, they're like, oh yeah, makes sense. You're free to go. And then he leaves. He's acquitted of the crime because apparently he gave the defense that I was just down in the dumps and then he's acquitted of the crime. That's insane. That's so infuriating because, again, it's just one of those instances where it's like, what were the police thinking exactly when they just acquitted him of a crime because he claimed to be down in the dumps, whatever that means? So then on June 1st of 1980, Chris picks up two 18-year-old tourists from Tennessee uh, at the Florida Mall and convinces both of them that he was a photographer and wanted to take test shots for a pizza ad. So the two girls in this ad are eating pizza, but what they don't know is that Chris actually put LSD in both of the pizzas. So as they were eating it, they were being drugged and one of the girls felt very woozy and so Chris was like, oh, if you're feeling lightheaded, you should go in my truck and lay down for a while and so when she did do that that is when chris had raped her chris had left to go find the other girl and bring her into his truck but when he left the girl was able to break free from the truck and run straight to mall security to call the police and so when chris came back because he couldn't find the other girl and found that the girl that was in the truck was gone he just got in his truck and drove off the girl that was raped by Chris was taken to the hospital and they found a blood type in the semen that was found on her so they were able to find a blood type but again not specifically identify the person but the description that the girl gave the police it sounded exactly like Chris Wilder and so a week later Chris was arrested and admitted to posing as a photographer and raped that girl at the mall he knew he had a problem and he told the court that he was currently seeing a psychiatrist for his sex addiction but this was never proved and it was proved that in the past he had seen the psychiatrist but it was never proved that he was currently still seeing the psychiatrist he pled guilty to the sexual battery but was only given five years probation and again absolutely no jail time during his probation he started to get involved in the florida racing scene as i said he had a porsche so he would go to these races with his porsche 911. And so in 1981, Chris was trying to get into the dating scene more and he actually made a video for this dating service. And in this video, you can see Chris basically explaining himself. He says that he has a business as a carpenter and construction and he's very wealthy and he's just looking for a girl that he can chat with, you know, basically just saying all the typical stuff that a guy thinks would get a girl's attention essentially. And whilst he's explaining all of this you can definitely see in the video how smooth talking Chris is and how he's very eloquent with his words and so you kind of get an inside look at how Chris with his smooth words were able to get so many victims um it was never confirmed that he actually got a date from this dating website but it was just a piece of evidence this was the first time that you know people had seen Chris speak on January 
January 16th of 1981, 17-year-old Mary Opitz was found missing from the mall parking lot, but the body was never found. And then on February 11th of 1981, 18-year-old Mary Hare went missing from the same parking lot, and her body was later found in June. And both of these girls were suspected to be victims of Chris Wilder. In 1982, he decided to move back to Sydney with his parents uh, with permission from the court and the court agree that he he is fine to go back to Sydney and so when he did go back to Sydney although he was moved somewhere else he still did his old habits and where he would go to the beach and approach young women with his photographer approach so then the next day that is when he met a 16 year old girl on the beach and approached her with his typical photographer approach he took the girl to a store so that she could buy and try on swimsuits but when she refused to pose nude for him they both drove back to the beach and he forced the girl to go on the beach and try to find him someone new the girl ended up finding another girl that would you know pose for chris but she did not leave in the part where he wanted nude photos and so when this girl went to chris she was under the impression that he was a photographer and that he was only going to be taking a couple of test shots but instead he forced the girl to remove her top he took topless photos of her but she was able to get away from him and then she reported him to the police the very next day and was able to pick him out of a photo lineup now although she had picked this guy from the photo lineup no consequences were given to chris he wasn't even questioned by the police so then a few weeks later in 1982 chris found two 15 year old girls on the beach and got them to go in his truck for his photo shoot. He took them to multiple locations, gradually moving closer and closer to his hotel room. When they got to the hotel room, he told them that if they didn't strip for him, that he would hurt them. So these two 15-year-old girls, very terrified, they have no choice but to comply, so they do so. And the whole time, Chris is masturbating to them so then afterwards he drove the two girls back to the beach and when they returned to the beach the two girls were actually there with three other boys and when the two girls got back they were acting really really odd and they felt a very deep pit this weird vibe from this guy so the three boys decided to quickly write down chris's license plate number to report him to the police and so they reported this to the police and the police were able to track down the car and notify the parents of what happened and at first when the girls were talking to the police they didn't want to open up about the situation in fear that the photos that Chris had taken were going to be released but after a while the girls were able to open up to the police and talk about the whole situation and what happened they found that the license plate number was a car rented by Chris Wilder the girls took the police to Chris's hotel room and Chris was still at the hotel and Chris was questioned about this whole situation. Chris admitted to what he did. He said that he was very ashamed of his problem and when the police asked him where the footage was, he claimed that he didn't have the footage or the photos anymore because he had thrown them all away. So Chris was arrested for this incident and he pled not guilty. He felt like he wasn't guilty to this crime because he had a lot of underlying issues that made him do what he did 
did and the defense team for the girls as well as the court was pressing some sort of jail time for Chris because he had clearly done this so so many times in the past and so you know who knows if he's gonna do it again or even do it to multiple girls in the future so they were really pressing jail time to make sure that he doesn't do this to any other girls but for some reason the court just did not listen but as I said his father has a lot of money and with a lot of money comes a lot of power. Chris was supposed to be given jail time but had a bail of $400,000 but with the help of his father he was able to post bail and get released again never seeing the inside of a jail cell. After this incident, Chris left Sydney once again and went back to Florida. He told the court that he was going back to Florida to participate in all of the races. He felt that maybe racing his car will keep him distracted and not want to re-offend. And the court believed him and they were like, yeah, of course, you can go back to Florida. Which, again what were the police thinking? So whilst his return into Florida in 1983, he met an aspiring model and actress named Elizabeth Keon. She was also Miss Florida USA as a finalist and when Chris approached her, he used his typical photographer approach and since she was already a model, she already had people taking pictures of her, she kind of declined the offer at first but that is when Chris asked her if he wanted to go to dinner with her and to this she accepted. The two went to dinner together and after a while Chris started to develop feelings for Elizabeth to where they started to see each other frequently for the next couple of months and after only a couple months of dating Chris had proposed to Elizabeth but Elizabeth declined because she just felt like she didn't feel the same way as Chris. She didn't see herself marrying a guy like Chris so that's when the couple split but they still remained friends. So then on June 27th of 1983, a girl by the name of Sherilyn Ball had told her mom that she was going to meet her friend in Boynton Beach and then she was going to drive from Boynton Beach to New York City to pursue modeling. And then a few days later, Sherilyn had called her boyfriend from Ashland, Virginia and said that she and her friend were on the way to New York City, but she never said exactly who the friend was or or what his name was and then after that call Sherilyn was never seen or heard from again until October of 1983 her body was found in the woods by a hunter but her body was never identified until 2014. At the end of July in 1983, Chris returned to Sydney to do his two-day court hearing before returning back to Florida. He went to his two-day hearing, but at this court hearing, there were so many witness statements that they weren't able to get all of the witness statements done in one day, so they had to extend the hearing until April 3rd of 1984. Chris's lawyer had tried to get so many of the witness statements through thrown out but the judge refused because he felt like all of these statements were viable evidence against Chris. So with all of these witness statements and all of these testimonies, people going against Chris, Chris felt very overwhelmed. He felt like people were, you know, closing in on him. He felt like he was actually going to go to jail now, you know. He felt 
he felt like, you know, for the first time in his life, he was actually going to suffer consequences from his actions. And so with this, he felt very scared. He felt he felt very pressured, very closed in. And so he went back to Florida until his next court date. And whilst he was in Florida, he decides to just go on a rampage and try to basically get as many victims as he can before he goes to jail. So then in early 1984, he offered Elizabeth Kenyon, the model from earlier, if she wanted a modeling job at the Miami Grand Prix, but she had to decline because she said that she was going to be out of town. So whilst all of this was happening in early of 1984, the remains of two separate bodies were found near Chris's old house and both of the bodies had been there for a different amount of time but both of the bodies definitely were there while Chris was living there. So Chris is suspected of these crimes but again he was never questioned about them. So then on February 26th of 1984, Chris competed as a solo driver in the Miami Grand Prix. The event had 75,000 people, including lots of young women. And then that is when Chris approached a sample girl by the name of Rosario Gonzalez, and he offered her a modeling position for a Budweiser commercial, which she agreed to. So she and Chris had left, and he said that it was only going to be taking you know a couple of minutes it's not that you know big it's not that big of a production it's only going to take maybe an hour so she leaves work and afterwards hours and hours go by and her co-workers still don't see rosario so they start to grow very very concerned and when she didn't show up at home that night her parents called the police to report rosario missing rosario's employer put up a twenty-five thousand reward plus the parents put in another five thousand reward if anybody had any information on the guy that she left with or any information on where Rosario is. But unfortunately, with all of these efforts to find Rosario, Rosario was never found. On March 8th of 1984, Elizabeth Kenyon was found at a gas station in Coral Gables, which is about an hour and a half from Boynton. Remember how I said Chris had a house in Boynton? So it was only an hour and a half drive and Elizabeth Elizabeth was seen there by an attendant who was pumping her gas and Elizabeth was actually having a conversation with this gas man but uh but Chris immediately stopped the conversation and said that they shouldn't be chatting because they're in a hurry. The gas attendant says that Elizabeth and Chris were talking about going to the airport and Elizabeth turned to the gas attendant and asked him if she looked okay and then after that Elizabeth's car was later found in the Miami airport parking lot but as for Elizabeth, after this moment, she was unfortunately never seen again. The gas attendant was interviewed by the police about this situation and he was able to pick out Chris Wilder in a photo lineup. So when Chris was questioned about this situation, he denied ever being at the gas station with Elizabeth. So as a way to scare Chris into telling the truth, one of the private investigators told Chris that they're actually looking into the case of Rosario Gonzalez because they think Chris also has ties with that case as well. So when the private investigator tells this to Chris, Chris starts panicking again because he starts thinking, you know, they're on to me, they're 
they're on to all of the people that how are they knowing how do they know this how do they know what I'm doing he starts freaking out because the police are finally closing in on him they're realizing all of these terrible things that they're that he's doing and Chris starts realizing that he is surely going to go to prison very very soon so then on March 16th of 1984 a reporter made an article in the Miami Herald linking Rosario and Elizabeth both to a Porsche riding resident in Boynton Beach and again Chris had a Porsche Chris also lived in Boynton Beach so this even further panicked Chris he felt like everybody was closing in on him he felt like everybody was now knowing all of the things that he was doing so the more pressure that Chris felt the more violent Chris got so that's exactly what he pursued to do on March 15th of 1984 15 year old Colleen Osborne was missing from Doytona Beach, which is only about three hours away from Boynton Beach. The mother did not report her right away because Colleen had a history of running away for a few days, but after a couple of days of Colleen not returning home on March 19th of 1984, the mother reported Colleen missing to the police. The police talked to Colleen's friends, and one of Colleen's friends had told the police that Colleen was recently offered a $100 modeling gig by a guy that matched exactly to Chris's description. And ironically, Chris was also staying at a nearby motel to Colleen the night before her disappearance. Unfortunately, Colleen's body was later discovered in Lake Buena Vista, which is about a two and a half hour drive from Boyton Beach. At first, they thought that this body was not Colleen because the x-rays did not match the broken arm that she had had. So they just assumed that this was not Colleen and Colleen's body was never identified until 2011. So then on March 18th of 1984, Chris decided to basically pack up all of his things and start running from the police instead of just staying where he was. So that is when he took his dog to a boarding house. He shut down his business. He sold all of his cars, including his Porsche and Cadillac, and instead took a company-owned Chrysler New Yorker. So after all of his valuables were sold, he met a 21-year-old girl by the name of Teresa Ferguson at Merritt Square Mall. He approached her with the typical photographer approach, but what Chris didn't know is that Teresa's stepfather was a local police officer and he found her car in a parking lot at around 10.30 p.m. and he waited at her car until 12 a.m., but Teresa never came came back to her car. Then later on that night, they found that a tow truck company had gotten a call from a man whose car was stuck in the sand in a remote location called Lover's Lane. Basically, it's a remote location that a lot of lovers go, hence the name Lover's Lane, and the two people that came from the tow truck company to get the car out of the sand said that this man was by himself, which was very odd because for Lover's Lane, you usually come with someone, but this guy was completely all by himself, but the tow people didn't really question it. They just thought, you know, maybe this guy is unfamiliar with the area and he just doesn't really know that this is Lover's Lane, but nonetheless, the tow people just brushed it off and this 
man paid with a credit card. On March 21st of 1984, Teresa's body was found in a creek in Haynes City, which is only a 45-minute drive away from Lover's Lane, and that is exactly the location where that guy had his car stuck in the sand dunes. And this guy at Lover's Lane, again, is speculated to be Chris Wilder. So then on March 20th of 1984, he went to the Governor Square Mall in Tallahassee to try to find some women, and that is when he met 19-year-old Linda Grober. He approached her with his photographer approach, but Linda had declined his offer, and although Chris left, he did still stalk Linda from afar, and while stalking her, he approached her once again with the photographer approach, and Linda said that although she's not interested, she has two roommates that may be interested in taking some test shots for him, and so Chris gave her his business card, and she tried to call her roommates, but there was no answer. Chris left for a second time, but again, still stalked Linda from afar, and as she was getting into her car, he approached her for a third time and said, are you sure you don't want to take test shots for me? And at this point, Linda felt very scared because this was the third time that he had approached her, meaning that he had been watching her. And so she just, you know, says, no, I don't want to. But when she said that she wasn't interested, Chris punched her in the stomach that eventually ended up knocking her out. And Linda woke up later on in the backseat of his car and in a wooded area. Once Linda woke up, Chris pulled her out of the car and started to tie her up and as she was being tied up, she started begging to Chris for her life, saying that her father was extremely wealthy and how much money did he want, but it was said at this time that Chris was worth around two million dollars, so it wasn't money that he was after, it was power that he was after. He loved the feeling of power, he loved the feeling that he could get away with anything he wanted to with no consequence at all. So Chris put Linda in the trunk of his car and they drove for 10 to 12 hours. At one point, Chris stopped and began choking Lisa and then just continued driving. Uh, I think he did this just to prove a certainty or dominance to Linda in that he was still serious about what he was doing. They ended up in Bainbridge, Georgia, which is only an hour away from Tallahassee. So it was said that possibly he was driving around for 10 hours, either trying to confuse Linda to make it seem like she was farther than where she was, or maybe he was just driving around for 10 hours in a panic and didn't know what to do with Linda. So that is when he rented out a motel room in Bainbridge and he was able to get Linda out of the trunk of his car with no one noticing. So they went into the motel room. Chris took off Linda's clothes and raped her three times while watching TV. Chris also super glued Linda's eyes shut and connected electrical cords to her fingers and toes and continued to electrocute her. He told her that he would shock her for 10 seconds at a time, but if she screamed, it would be 30 seconds at a time. He also told her that if she were to deny any sexual things, she would be gang raped and sent to South America. So then after the electrocution, he said that he 
wanted to shave her so he went to the bathroom and whilst he was in the bathroom Linda was able to see a little bit out of one of her eyes because it was glued shut but not completely. She said that through one of her eyes she could see that the front door was wide open so she jumped up immediately and ran straight for the door but she couldn't make it in time because Chris was able to tackle her to the floor and he hit Linda over the head with a hair dryer to which Linda pretended to be knocked out with the thinking that Linda was knocked out but when Chris's guard was down Linda jammed both of her fingers in Chris's eyes and was able to run away. She immediately ran into the bathroom, locked it, and screamed as loud as she could for help thinking that since they were in a motel there must be people next door that might hear her. So Chris was very panicked because he knew that with her screaming there was going to be people walking in there any second. So he immediately grabbed all of her belongings, all of his belongings, got into his car and drove off. Linda was screaming for about 30 minutes until she decided to slowly walk out of the bathroom and that is when she realized not only Chris was gone but all of her belongings were gone as well. Linda was able to get help and she was sent to the hospital. Her eyes were treated but thankfully there was no lasting physical damage. She said that it was Chris Wilder who had done this to her and Chris was currently on the run from his crime but would become later one of the biggest FBI manhunts in history. They attempted to track Chris's credit card history in hopes of trying to figure out where he was but back in the 80s it wasn't as quick as it is now. It usually took a couple of days to figure out that information. So the police were always a couple steps behind Chris at this point because when they would get his credit card information in a couple of days they already had Chris already had a couple days worth of running ahead of the police. So then on March 21st of 1984, Chris found a woman by the name of Terry Walden in Beaumont, Texas, and he approached her with his typical photographer approach. Terry had declined, and although Terry declined and Chris had left, Chris had still stalked Terry from afar. On March 23rd of 1984, two days later, he had followed Terry to her school, which was Lamar University, and as she was leaving, he kidnapped her and left in Terry's car, and unfortunately, her body was later found in a canal. She was beaten and stabbed in the chest, and the stab wounds were so bad that it went all the way through her body from front to back. The FBI later found Chris's abandoned New Yorker and Teresa Ferguson's DNA found in the trunk of this New Yorker. On February 25th of 1984, 21-year-old Susan Logan went missing from Penn Square Mall in Oklahoma City. She didn't return home and her husband called the police, but the police just shrugged it off, which was so odd. The police just didn't really seem to care and just told the husband that, you know, girls do this all the time. There, She's going to be home soon. But whilst the police were just shrugging off this situation, saying that she had just ran away, Chris had actually took Susan to a motel in Newton, Kansas. And what was done to her was unknown. From Chris's previous crimes we can 
get an idea of what happened to her. And then the next morning, her body was found by a fisherman in a reservoir near Junction City where her body was stabbed to death. The autopsy said that she was raped, beaten, as well as bite marks found on her breasts. There were four punction marks on her spine, the result of some sort of torture device. Her pubic hair was shaved off and the time of death was only an hour before the body was discovered and so that means that Chris was probably in the area as the police were finding her body. So Chris was able to get ahead of the police and he spent the following days driving around. He went to Colorado and then Denver and then Aurora to buy a Colt Trooper revolver and he eventually did successfully buy the Colt Troop revolver but there was no background check taken and he just paid for the gun in cash. And then on March 29th of 1984, 18-year-old Cheryl Rona Ventura was on her way to meet a friend in Aspen but Cheryl Cheryl decided to make a stop at the Grand Junction Mall in Colorado and it was at this mall where Chris approached Cheryl outside of the mall and offered her a modeling gig in Las Vegas. Cheryl's friends had said that Cheryl's dream was to become a model and her dream was also to be approached and recruited in public so they would not be surprised if she had accepted this deal fairly quickly. And then three hours away, Chris had checked into a motel in Durango. And then the next day, a waitress said that she had seen Chris and Cheryl eating lunch together and Cheryl was very, very excited about going to Las Vegas. She was talking to the waitress about it, how she was going to be a successful model. But unfortunately, later on, her body was found on May 3rd in a remote area in Kenya, Utah, which is only about an hour away from where they were staying. She was shot once and then stabbed multiple times and then later on after that Chris had checked into a motel in Vegas where a cleaner had found a tan bra, a pair of underwear, pantyhose, a black slip, a blow-off doll, and a dildo. Again, no one really knows what happened during that incident. Some people say that uh, Cheryl was involved in this incident. Other people say that it was just Chris doing this by himself. And then in, and then on April 1st of 1984, there was a modeling competition for Seventeen Magazine held at the Meadows Mall in Las Vegas. And a photographer actually took a picture of all of the models. And in the background of this picture, Chris Wilder can be seen sitting in the crowd, proving that Chris Wilder was in this location and at this mall at this time. So since this was a competition for a magazine, this is the area where a lot of these vulnerable young girls would be most vulnerable to take up an offer from a photographer. So that is when Chris had talked to 17-year-old Michelle Korfman with his photographer approach, but he later tied her up and put her into his trunk. And her body was found in Angeles National Forest on May 11th, about a three and a half hour 
drive from the mall. The autopsy said that her death was due to suffocation with a foreign matter. A lot of forensics say that this was due to maybe Chris shoving her head into soil or sand and she had inhaled so much soil and sand that she ended up suffocating and passing away. On April 3rd of 1984, he had gotten a motel in Lomita where he went to the Delmo Fashion Center in Torrance. And although this area was very known for its beaches, it was very close to the beach, Chris did not go to the beach, but he preferred to go to the mall instead. And that is where he approached 16-year-old Tina Marie Risco. She had taken the bus from school to the mall because she actually had a job interview. And when Chris had approached Tina, he said that he represented the John Power Modeling School and wanted to take test shots. He gave her $100 up front and said that if the shoot went okay, he would need to talk to her parents for approval. And this was a new thing that he was doing with his approaches as well, especially if he would approach younger women. He said that if the test shots went well, he would have to talk to her parents first because since she was underage, she couldn't make any of these decisions by herself. So this was a way to get the girls's trust and be like, okay, well, clearly this guy knows that I'm underage. And so since he knows that he has to talk to my parents, it makes me for, it makes me feel more comfortable going with him. So Chris and Tina got in the car and they drove off past the John Power School and onto a beach. And that is where Chris had asked Tina to take off her top and put on this white jacket that he had in the back. So she wasn't fully nude, but she was partially nude. They drove to the mountains of Trabuco Canyon for more pictures and it was here that Chris pulled out a gun on Tina and said I've killed before and I won't hesitate to kill you and that is when he cocked the gun put it in her mouth and put a knife up to her skin and dragged it from her chin to her stomach they got back in the car and he forced Tina to take off all of her clothes and sit on top of him while he raped her afterwards he tied her up and put her in the back seat while they drove off to a motel in El Centro, California. And in that motel is where he raped her again. He electrocuted her neck, chest, stomach, and toes as a punishment for saying no. And he also threatened that if she declined any of his offers, she would be gang raped and sent to South America. The next day, they drove and stopped at a diner for lunch and forced Tina to stay in the car. That night, they stayed in a different motel where there was more rape and electrocution. Chris saw himself on the news that night with his mugshot and a beard. So after he saw that, he immediately shaved his beard. And so after seeing himself on the news, Chris kind of felt very scared that the police were going to be on to him soon. So as I said, when Chris starts to feel super pressured, that's when he starts to become more violent. And so then he decided to flee to NYC, but in the meantime, he stayed in Prescott, Arizona, where he brought Tina along and again continued to rape her. 
On August 5th of 1984, he was added to the FBI's most wanted list and there was actually a press conference held and they discussed this guy, Chris Wilder, and his kidnapping techniques. They put up flyers. They warned all modeling agencies, all malls, mall security. They warned the schools. But since this was during the 80s, it was at a time where there was no social media or internet. So the only way words spread is if you watched the news, which a lot of younger people didn't watch the news. So it was only getting to a specific crowd of people. So Chris and Tina left Prescott, Arizona, and Chris made Tina drive, and he had Tina pull over into a parking garage in Arkansas and stole the plates off of another car to put on theirs. From there, they drove to Indiana, where he told Tina to go into a mall in Maryville, and he would let her go if she found him another girl. They went into the mall, and he pointed out a girl that he wanted, and he said, do it, succeed, or I'll shoot you dead in the mall. But Tina was so scared and she didn't know what to say to the girl and Chris was nervous that if Tina went up to the girl, Tina may even sell him out. So Chris quickly, you know, retracted retracted from his statement and said, you know what, I'm gonna do it, don't do anything. So he goes up to 16-year-old Donette Wilt and he approaches her with the photographer approach and Donette says that in this moment, she felt kind of safer that Tina was there because with Tina there, it kind of felt more comfortable that there was another girl there. And Tina really wanted to warn Donette in this situation as well, but she knew that Chris had a gun on him, so she just decided to stay quiet. So then when they got back to Chris's car, that is when Chris pulled a gun out on Donette and Donette was tied and placed in the backseat of his car where all three of them drove to a motel. The three of them went to Akron, Ohio, where they got a motel and it was there where Chris made Tina go take a a shower while he raped and electrocuted Donette in the other room. He inserted wire into her and made Tina sleep on one bed while Chris and Donette slept in the other. He raped her through the night. Donette at one point attempted to tell Chris that she was pregnant and this comment made Chris very angry for some reason and he told her that whilst he was electrocuting her, he hopes that he was hurting her baby. The next morning he raped and tortured Donette again before seeing himself on TV once again but also found that the FBI were thousands of miles behind him. All three of them left the motel and forced Donette to take sleeping pills. They drove to a wooded area where he raped Donette and stabbed her in the neck as well as twice in the chest. Donette was still alive but struggling to stay alive and she used up all of her strength to scream at Chris the words, I hate you, I hope you die, and, and to that Chris replied, shut up you blank. Chris goes back to the car and Tina drives off and as they're driving, Chris starts to realize that Donette was alive when he last saw her and so he starts to grow a little concerned. He starts freaking out that maybe Donette is alive. So that is when he makes Tina pull over and he starts driving the car. So they drive back to the wooded area. He gets out of the car. He goes to where he left Donette and Donette was gone. So he goes back into the car and he tells Tina, Donette's gone. We need to get out of here right now. 
So whilst Chris and Tina were gone, Donette was actually unable to untie her wrists and get the tape off of her eyes. She was also able to use her pants to tie around her chest to control the bleeding. And as she was able to walk out of the forest, she saw a man named Charles Larson driving by who pulled over and led her to the hospital. She survived the attack and she told the police that it was Chris Wilde that had done this to her and he is with a woman named Tina and they are currently on their way to Canada. So with this information, the police are right on Chris's tail. They know exactly where he's headed and exactly where he is right now. So as they're driving, they pull over into a mall parking lot and they find that they need a different car now because there are probably some people who are familiar with their car. So as they're driving around, Chris spots a gold Pontiac Firebird owned by 33-year-old Beth Dodge, who was in the middle of leaving her work for the day. He sees Beth starting to walk towards the car, and so when he does, he walks straight up to Beth and points a gun at her and forces Beth into the back seat of her own car whilst he drives the car and he directs Tina to follow the Pontiac and leading both of them into a secluded area. Now, a lot of people are very confused as to why Tina didn't just leave right then and there. You know, she was in the car by herself. She could have just drove off if she wanted to. Tina, at this point, was only 16 years old. She was a little girl, essentially. And so when you're in this situation and you have endured so much trauma as she has, you just don't know what to do. You don't know what the right thing to do is. She is just so brainwashed at this point by Chris. She's just doing what he tells her to do out of fear that something is going to happen. Even though she's in the car by herself, she is just so scared that something is going to happen to her, it's just a lot easier to comply and do what he tells her to do. So I think I think that that's why she just didn't do anything because she was just fearful for her life, you know? Again, she was just a 16-year-old girl. So Tina ends up following them to a secluded location where Chris had shot Beth in the back and it went through her back and out her heart and this shot ended up killing her. But what Chris didn't know is that someone was in the woods hunting and they actually saw Chris commit this crime. So right after the crime was committed, the person, the hunter, was able to see what Chris looked like and and quickly go to Beth's body. And so with this, the police were able to find her body fairly quickly. And again, the police were right on Chris's tail. They knew exactly where he was as well as exactly where he was going. They also knew what car he was driving because they realized that Beth drove a gold Pontiac Firebird and her gold Pontiac Firebird was no longer in her work parking lot. And so they drove the Pontiac all the way to Boston where Chris bought a plane ticket to Los Angeles and gave the ticket to Tina along with some cash. And then with this, Chris gave Tina a kiss and a very sentimental goodbye, telling her that he was going to miss her and that although they have to leave each other now, that doesn't mean that they can't see each other in the future, and that it was just a very sentimental goodbye, which is very odd because 
you start to see a side of Chris that is very foreign, you know, with all of these horrific crimes that he had committed, he is now developing feelings for someone. And the reason why he developed these feelings for her is unknown because maybe it was because she was just complying with everything that he told her to do. Although he had raped her and electrocuted her and done all these horrific things to her, he had weirdly developed feelings for Tina. And so then after they say their goodbyes, Chris leaves and Tina goes to the food court where she eats french fries while she waits for her plane. She gets on her plane, she goes back home, she goes to her boyfriend's house where she takes a shower before heading off to the police station and reporting Chris. And again, same thing with this situation. Tina waited a while before going forward to the police. And I think, again, it was just she was so mentally and physically tortured that she just was numb to everything and she didn't really know how to feel and what to think and I don't think people should tell her what she should have done or what she should have thought because I feel like unless you're in that same exact situation you would never know what the exact right thing is to do unless you yourself are in that situation. So whilst Chris is still in Boston he pulls a gun out on 19 year old old Carol Hilbert, but she got away and once she got away, he got back in his car and drove from Boston off to Canada. On April 13th, he pulled into a service station in Colebrook, New Hampshire, and when he walked into the station office, he asked for directions to cross into Canada and what paperwork he needed, and as Chris walked back to his Firebird, he saw the police drive past in an unmarked car. Now, the police that were in this unmarked car were completely clueless as to who Chris was and what crime he had committed. But the police said that when they saw Chris, Chris seemed very suspicious and he kept on staring at the police car and he was walking very quickly off to his car. And so since he was acting very suspicious, the police just thought to pull Chris over and see what was going on. So the police then pull into the service station just to see if Chris was okay. And so as Chris sits in the driver's seat, he sees that the police are pulling into the service station and he thinks that the police are pulling into the service station to arrest him so he immediately hops over into the passenger side of the car but it was locked so he went back and tried to jump into the driver but cop Chuck Jellison ran into him and grabbed him as he was trying to flee but Chris was able to get a hold of Chuck's revolver and he shot himself in the chest and the bullet went through his chest and out his back and into Chuck's abdomen that was standing behind him. Chuck had fell to the floor clutching his abdomen and that is when Chris had shot a second shot into his heart and this was the shot that ended up killing Chris. When help arrived, Chuck was able to make a full recovery with no major damage and as the help showed up, they realized that the person that had died on the scene was the FBI's most wanted Christopher Wilder. They looked in the car and they found things like electrical cord and duct tape and super glue, things all used in torture devices. And so once Chris was dead, that is 
unfortunately where this all ended because their hunt was over they found chris that's what they were trying to do they were trying to arrest him they were trying to charge him they were trying to question him but unfortunately he had passed away before any of that could have happened so although at this point chris could no longer hurt any other women there was nothing for him to do anymore it really still left all of those families wondering what happened to their children and what made Chris do what he did and especially the number of women that Chris had committed these horrific crimes to. So now we don't know a number. Everything is upon speculation. As far as the aftermath of all of this, Tina and Donette were the only two people to survive Chris Wilder. So they are in their 60s now, 50s, 60s. There's no information about them on the internet, which I'm assuming they are just preferring to live very private lives now because, again, they are the only two survivors of Chris Wilder. And that is unfortunately where this story ends. Chris never received any jail time whatsoever for any crime that he did. He killed himself right before he was able to be sent to jail. Um, And yeah, so that is the end of today's story. I hope all of the families of the victims are coping with their losses and are trying to just get better as much as they can and so yeah that is the end of today's episode if you guys found this story interesting make sure to subscribe and come back here next wednesday to watch the visual version on youtube or listen to the audio version next tuesday on spotify apple or wherever you can find podcasts if you want to follow me on any of my social media like my instagram that will be linked down below in the youtube description as well as my po box if you want to send me anything and yeah that is the end of today's story Again, this was probably the longest story I've ever had to research. This case is so graphic and vulgar that I just needed to take a day or two to recoup and, you know, not think about this for a couple of days before going back into it. But I'm glad that you guys are now aware of this situation and, you know, just be safe out there. Understand that there are a lot of really, really terrible people out there that do terrible things and especially with this photographer approach, he was able to do so many horrible things to so many young girls that were just excited and wanted to become a model and wanted to, you know, live the glamorous lifestyle of a model and they felt like, you know, someone was telling them that they were pretty enough to be a model and unfortunately that is not how it ended for them and so with that being said, be safe out there. I love you guys and I will see you back here next week. Mwah.